This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of the killing of a 14-year-old girl and may not be suitable for all listeners. As always, discretion is advised. In the middle of Berkshire, close to Wokingham, and nestled between the villages of Crowthorne and Finchhampstead, there stands a bungalow called Diligence on a road named Hollybush Ride. Look at a map of the area and you'll see houses to the north, but to the south lay three straight roads which intersect to form the shape of a triangle, inside which is mostly the National Trust-owned area of Simon's Wood, a woodland filled with ponds, wildlife and birdsong. The bottom part of the triangle is Wellingtonia Avenue, so named for the tall, broad sequoia trees which line its path. If you look at an older map of the area, you'll see how much of the ground was once woodland, split close to the top of the triangle by a track referred to as the Devil's Highway, once a Roman road and now no more than sandpaths and scrubland. I know I often mention referring to old maps, but for cases like this, ones which go back to the 1960s or even earlier, they're an invaluable tool for understanding how an area has grown and changed over time. In the map I'm referring to, diligence has not yet been built, and the three-acre plot where it today stands is merely marked by solid boundary lines, the area itself still part of the woodland. The land was bought in 1955 by Arthur Bradbury. Mr Bradbury and his wife Jean had one child, a daughter named Ruth, who was born in Suffolk in 1953. By the mid-fifties, they were living in Berkshire, and Arthur, who owned a laundrette in Reading and later worked as a commercial display artist, had purchased the land on which, over the course of four years, diligence would be built. The family were active members of the local community, and in the 60s, Mr Bradbury was the chairman and producer of the Wokingham Players Amateur Dramatics Group, an interest he'd discovered while a prisoner of war in a merchant navy camp. Jean Bradbury was stage manager and liaison officer between the Wokingham Young Players and the main group. By 1967, when today's case occurred, 14-year-old Ruth had already been a member of the Young Players since its formation three years prior. Given her parents' love of theatre, it was no surprise that Ruth was following in their footsteps, and, despite being known as something of a solitary girl, one who loved to take long walks alone in the woodland and spend time with her animals, she regularly appeared in the company's productions. Ruth was often described in reductionist terms as a pretty girl, she wore her blonde hair below her shoulders, usually in a ponytail, and was a bit above the average weight and height for her age bracket at around 5 foot 6 inches. Despite her stature, inside she was young for her age. Anne Clark, the secretary at Edgebarrow Secondary Modern in Crowthorne where Ruth attended school, remembered her as a thoroughly nice child and very much a schoolgirl, saying... She was not terribly grown up for her age as some girls of 14 are. Her passion was horses. While she sometimes talked to her friends about boyfriends, 
she never gave details and when pressed for memories of her, neighbours recalled that she could most often be seen playing with her dog Susie or the new addition to the family, her pony, Tico, who could be found grazing in the field behind where Diligence stood. In the autumn of 1966, probably in preparation for Tico's arrival, Ruth had begun to take riding lessons, adding to the Saturday morning ballet classes she was attending, as well as her responsibilities in the Wokingham Young Players. The family, despite being relatively new to the area, had made their mark. You can find Arthur Bradbury's name scattered throughout local newspaper reports in the 60s as producer, writer, director and actor in multiple productions. Some were serious affairs, like Arthur Miller's The Crucible, others including a couple of self-penned pantomimes, less so. Arthur Bradbury even had a hand in the naming of the Wokingham Players' permanent venue, Wokingham Theatre, a name which he told the Reading Evening Post in 1966 that, despite the company's amateur roots, I don't think this is pretentious. And his work for the players, alongside that of his colleagues, should have been his legacy. Yet, on the 29th of March 1967, Ruth Bradbury was shot and killed while walking home to Diligence through Simon's Woods. Three years later, the Bradbury's bungalow was sold and the family relocated to Cornwall. It's been 55 years now and the identity of whoever killed Ruth, whether it be by accident or on purpose, remains unknown. I'm Jess Carter, and this is a bonus Patreon episode of the Outlines podcast. Wednesday, March the 29th, was cold but sunny. Neighbours remembered Ruth playing outside in the garden at around 9.30am and, after the family had eaten breakfast, her grandma, who was staying with the Bradburys, asked her to run an errand in nearby Crowthorn. When she set out, she was wearing African violet-coloured trousers, a sweater and a blue anorak. The walk was probably around half an hour along the roads to Duke's Ride, Crowthorne's main thoroughfare. When she got there, her first stop was WH Smith's, where she used her Easter holiday pocket money to buy what is referred to in the papers as a Julie Dress Doll book. The closest I can find for what the book actually was is one of those cardboard cut-out doll books with interchangeable clothing but it appears as if the Julie books have been somewhat lost to time now. The woman who served her, Jennifer Robertson, described variously in articles as pretty, or very pretty, remembered her, saying, 
She spent a few minutes in the shop, and she was on her own. I remembered her particularly because it is unusual for a girl of her age to buy a Julie book. As well as W.H. Smith's, Ruth headed across the road to the grocer's. The woman who worked there, referred to only as the woman assistant, said, She may have been in here, but I'm not sure. I seem to remember serving a shy, fair-haired girl, but we have so many people in here, I can't remember exactly. At around 10.30 that morning, Arthur Bradbury saw his daughter on Duke's ride, carrying a shopping bag. He waved to her and she waved back. At around 10.45, she was seen again by a couple of car mechanics as she began her walk home. She was on her way back when she decided she should go to the newsagents, returning to Crowthorne one more time. The shortest route home would have taken her along the roads in the direction she'd come from, but instead she decided to take a walk up Wellingtonia Avenue, under the sequoia trees. Later, Detective Superintendent Frank Williams, who would briefly lead the investigation, said of this decision, This girl was well off her route. She should not have gone home that way. It was a cold day and she had a long way to walk home. She was at least half a mile away from her normal route. For Ruth, though, who enjoyed long walks, the woods on a cool but sunny day must have seemed like an inviting prospect. She made her way along Wellingtonia Avenue until she reached the first of a short row of Grange-style houses. Opposite the house was one of the entrances to Simon's Woods, and while not the most direct of routes, it did lead back to diligence if you followed the optimistically named lane far enough. At around 12.50 that afternoon, a worker at the Sperry Gyroscope factory at nearby Bracknell stopped in the woods, intending to eat his lunch. He found Ruth, about 200 yards down the sandy lane. She was laying in the centre of the path, on a sharp bend. On the ground beside where she had fallen, in a pool of her blood, lay her shopping bag, and, still clutched in her left hand, was her change from the shops. At first glance, it appeared as if she had been attacked from behind, and that whatever had happened had occurred not long before she was found. The day after Ruth's death, perhaps fuelled by speculation that her murder was linked to that of Yolandi Waddington's in Beenham, which had occurred five months previously, newspapers were quick to report that Ruth had suffered a severe knife wound to her throat. This was nowhere near the truth, though. At the top of her blue anorak, police found a bullet hole, and when her body was examined by Home Office pathologist Dr Keith Mant, he discovered that in one shot, 72 shotgun pellets had embedded themselves into her skin. Some were shallow wounds, but one, which appeared to have come from some of the pellets having fused together, was a half-inch wound. The fused pellets had entered her body below her neck and had deflected, fracturing the top of her spine and causing the haemorrhage which had killed her. Death, it was reported, would have been almost instantaneous. 
Following Ruth's killing, news spread quickly throughout the area, and her grandmother told the papers, One of her little friends ran to me and told me about it. She had not been gone from here more than two hours when it happened. On my most recent visit to Berkshire, Gemma and I took a detour to Simon's Woods. At the time, the little description available of the area in which Ruth was killed talked of the woods' two lakes, a picnicking spot and the thick carpet of leaves and moss which covered the ground. Around the path where she was found, tin can targets lay scattered and the trees and nearby fence posts were pockmarked with pellet holes. There's one reel of archival video footage from the time which shows the path near where she was discovered. It's flanked with leafy bushes and spindly trees, very different from those which line Wellingtonia Avenue. The day we visited, we ran into a little problem when Gemma's van was too tall to fit underneath the Simons Woods car park safety barrier. And so we stopped at the entrance and stood outside under the gloom of threatening rain clouds. Despite the line of nearby houses and helped by the road closed sign we'd circumnavigated on our way down Wellingtonia Avenue, the place was almost silent. The glimmer of recent rain on the trees around us made everything appear vibrant and green. The floor, even in early September, bore a carpet of dead leaves. The thin trees provided little in the way of eye height cover stretching up but not out in their attempts to fight for sunlight. As you'd expect from a National Trust area, the woods are clean and peaceful and bear no sign of the squirrel and bird shooting which was apparently rife there in the 1960s. At the time, Detective Superintendent Frank Williams was quoted at a press conference as saying, during the search, we have found plenty of evidence that a lot of shooting goes on in that area. It appears that 22 rifles have been used for shooting, as well as shotguns. We've established that a shot was heard in the vicinity of the killing on Wednesday, but we cannot rule out the possibility that it came from elsewhere. On Wednesday the 29th, Detective Superintendent Williams, who was second in command of the flying squad at Scotland Yard, spent 90 minutes inspecting the scene. If you've heard of Frank Williams before, it's probably because he was the most senior officer involved in the 1963 Great Train Robbery investigation. And while in 1967 he may have been more used to dealing with thefts and informants, by 1968, he had shifted permanently to the murder squad, where he stayed until his retirement in 1971. Alongside Frank Williams was Detective Sergeant Charles Boff, also of Scotland Yard, as well as a squad of police wearing wellies and carrying sticks, whose job it was to conduct an inch-by-inch -inch search of the area, looking for any evidence they could find. Three dozen police officers reportedly searched the scrubland near the path which led to one of the lakes in the area, Heath Pool, as well as the ground alongside Wellingtonia Avenue. 
despite the large amount of targets and pellet marks at the scene. Police had not had much luck recovering shotgun cartridges, especially that of a 410, which ballistic experts had ascertained, in part due to the quantity of pellets found in Ruth's body, to be the most likely murder weapon. In articles from the time, the 410 is often referred to as a lady's gun, which is a derogatory way of saying that it didn't have the power or kickback of other guns of its type, and was most often used by younger, more inexperienced shooters for aiming at squirrels and birds. The cartridges themselves were distinctively long and thin, and would have stood out amongst others, even through the woodland foliage. Within a few days of Ruth's killing, Superintendent Frank Williams was quoted as saying, We are still treating this as murder, although we cannot rule out the possibility of it being an accident. If some youngster comes forward and says it was an accident, we shall be very pleased. This appears to have been a motiveless killing. Ruth had not been assaulted in any way. But despite the end of the week's shift of focus, the day after Ruth was killed, a Wokingham man, prospective Liberal candidate Dennis Case, also a master at Wellington College, came forward to tell police, at about midday yesterday, I saw Ruth getting into a car at Duke's Ride. I recognised her from the pictures in the papers today. I obviously didn't think anything of it, but I noticed that the car was a metallic colour. I could not see what she was wearing, as the open door of the car partly obscured her. I didn't notice who was in the car. It soon transpired that Mr Case had been mistaken, but it's a good example of how investigations like this have to contend with well-meaning misinformation. It makes me wonder how often the same is true of witness statements that are never completely refuted, and how these can steer the narrative around cases away from the truth, especially when the press report widely upon them. This time, it took until only Friday, March the 31st, for Superintendent Williams to tell the papers, Mr Case's description does not tally with Ruth's. On that Friday, the investigation of the area was still in full swing. The place where Ruth's body had been discovered remained surrounded by a canvas screen, and on the lane, a police caravan was parked alongside a makeshift kitchen to provide tea to the officers combing the area. As well as the investigations on the scene, police were quick to contact staff at the notorious Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital in Crowthorne, to check that there were no escapees, though, thankfully, all 800 patients housed there were quickly accounted for. Detectives had soon realised that they needed a ballistics expert to examine the area where Ruth had been killed, and so they brought in Detective Superintendent John McCafferty, alongside local gun experts, to examine the scene. McCafferty conducted tests at Simon's Woods and quickly established that the shot had been fired from between 30 and 50 yards away, through a gap in a large rhododendron hedge, behind where Ruth had been walking. 
The rhododendron bush itself showed signs of a gun having been fired through the foliage. Several leaves were discovered to contain pellet holes, and a small scuff mark was visible on a branch near the front of the bush, which was probably made by the momentum of the barrel as the gun was fired. At the inquest, Superintendent McCafferty was asked whether the person who shot Ruth could have done so without knowing, to which he replied, No. From my observations, I could see quite clearly what was going on in the roadway at the point where the girl was found. It appears that, quite early on in the investigation, police were anxious to publicise the idea that whoever was responsible for Ruth's death could have shot her accidentally. Frank Williams told the press on Tuesday the 4th of April that it is very likely that the parents of a young hooligan may be assisting their son and not coming forward to us. If someone can show us this is a genuine accident, then they have nothing to fear. But if this is an accident, the longer this person stays away, the more sinister this case must appear. Whether the line was a ploy to lure out the perpetrator, or if police genuinely felt that a teenager might have shot Ruth accidentally, the focus of their investigations did, for a while, centre around youth clubs and schools. As well as anyone who might have witnessed someone shooting in the woods that morning, squads of police spoke to walkers, and while a young man was seen in the area at the time Ruth was found, he was soon located and cleared of any involvement. Several potential witnesses, all young, came forward and assisted detectives in building up a description of a van whose driver they wished to speak to. Unusually for these types of cases, the police were reticent to release details of the van, although Sergeant Boff explained their hesitancy by saying, we are dealing with very young children and their descriptions of this vehicle vary on certain details. More than two weeks after Ruth's death, a description was finally released. It was a small, plain, dark blue 5CWT in relatively good condition. The driver of the van was between 35 and 40 years old, with dark hair. The same day, the description of another driver was also given. He was around 20 years old, slim and dressed in a white shirt and black suit. While he had not been seen since the day of the shooting, he had been placed in the area on multiple occasions prior to the 29th of March. The car he drove was an old black vehicle, medium to large in size and was missing a rear bumper bar. By the 20th of April, James Boff told the media, We have not had one person come forward who was shooting in the woods on that day, but we believe there were more than just one person shooting there. And police, who by this point were running short on leads, also placed an appeal notice at the local cinema, asking for anyone who might have seen someone to come forwards. On the 10th of May, a description of a new potential witness was released. He was a fair-haired young man or youth, as he was described, who had been seen in the woods on the morning of the murder. 
He was aged between 15 and 17, of average height, with fair hair which he wore long at the front in a swoop over the right side of his forehead. The boy wore a light-coloured wind-cheater and long trousers and was riding a racing cycle with drop handlebars. Despite the police's assertions that the investigation into Ruth's death was still very much being pursued, there was little else that could be established to help their inquiries. None of the people whose descriptions were publicly released to the press were ever identified, and though they did bring in a succession of young men to be interviewed at Bracknell Police Station throughout May of 1967, nothing new came of the inquiries. The problem was that police had no real motivation for the crime and were working purely on theory. When the inquest got underway in July of that year, the coroner, Mr Brian Williams, told the jury that Ruth could have deliberately been shot by a maliciously minded person, though the official police line was still that a youth, whether through jest, accident or malicious intent, had killed her and was now being shielded by their family, unwilling to come forward through fear of the consequences. Even the ballistics experts had been conflicted as to how the 410 shotgun could have caused her death. The gun itself was legal to purchase as long as you were over the age of 17 and the barrel was more than 24 inches long. Speaking to the press, Newbury gunsmith Horace Payne said, Nowadays, boys can buy these guns when they like from mail-order firms. Often the guns have no name and are of poor quality. They have to pass a Home Office proof test, but this only tests the barrel and breech to make sure they do not blow up when fired. It does not try their mechanism, and on a cheap gun, it can wear quickly. He added... In the old days, when boys were taught to hunt by their fathers, they learned the safety rules of shooting. They knew birds should only be shot against the skyline, and rabbits should be shot down at. But this doesn't happen anymore. Once these cheaper guns were purchased, there were reportedly several well-known tricks to increase their firepower. One an expert told the Reading Evening Post on the one-year anniversary of Ruth's death, was by doctoring the cartridge and adding in a lead fishing weight. The lead weight, it was established, would provide the gun with three times the penetration power of an ordinary shot. Another involved the fusing together of pellets with wax, reportedly an old gamekeeper trick. This ball of pellets offered a similar increase in velocity to that of the lead weight. While the size of the hole made by the shot which killed Ruth backed up the theory that the pellets had somehow fused together, it couldn't be proved that this was a deliberate act and not just a result of an old cartridge which had gone unused for so long that the pellets had somehow meshed together of their own accord. Despite the evidence of shooting having taken place in Simon's Woods and the massive ground search operation which took place, very few 410 cartridges were found, which led police to consider the possibility that whoever had fired the shot was saving money on cartridges 
by piecing together their own with inexpensive ingredients purchased from a gunsmith. This theory, unfortunately, lends itself to any of the possible scenarios for how a relatively low-power gun, used mainly for shooting birds and small animals, could have become a murder weapon. Regardless of how it happened, the sinister idea of a person armed with a gun lurking behind a rhododendron bush in the middle of woodland is one which is difficult to shake off. For the people of Crowthorn and the surrounding areas, what happened to Ruth spurred them on to write letters to their local MP asking for stricter gun control and more warning to be given to children on the dangers of using firearms. Mrs Queenie Norries told the papers, We want something done quickly before another child dies. We continually hear the blasts of shotguns in the woods at the bottom of my garden. They are far too close for comfort. My dog Misky is terrified of the sound. Sooner or later, a stray bullet or cartridge is going to hit another child. It's worth adding that in 1968, controls for long-barrelled shotguns, like the kind used to kill Ruth, were introduced. The new act meant that people looking to purchase or own a 410 and other similar guns would be required to possess a certificate issued on application by the police. For the Bradbury family, of course, these new laws were to come into effect a year too late. In the aftermath of their daughter's death, her parents had been too distraught to stay at diligence, and within three years they had relocated to the southwest. There's a sadness that accompanies every case I cover on Outlines. I don't know if it's the way in which Ruth died, or how her parents were such active and vital parts of the community, or if it's a mixture of everything, but I feel the tragedy of Ruth's death strongly. It occurs to me that if it was a young person and maybe the shooting was an accident, they're probably still out there somewhere, their secret long hidden. Maybe one day they'll feel compelled to own up to what they did and finally be brave enough to lay this case to rest. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Harding.